Platypus has episode 24. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Joe Exotic, and this is Sarge. He was like a mythical character living out in the middle of bumfuck Oklahoma who owned 1,200 tigers and lions and bears and shit. I was into it. I binge-watched it, like, in two days. What was, what was your idea? Because I, I thought about Tiger King because everyone was talking about it, but I couldn't think about how to address it. But what were you thinking in terms of how the angle that Tiger King could be addressed? Well, I was just thinking about the kind of society the United States is and how Tiger King has, like, this libertarianism, right? So the guy, even though he's not, like, a self-conscious libertarian, but Mm. that is what he is in the sense because he doesn't want people to tell him what to do in his property. He's suspicious of government. He runs as a candidate, right? And at one point, he runs as a candidate in the libertarian party, but that's mostly because, you know, he's thinking that it's going to benefit him in the end. Yeah. and, and, you know, so he, he represents this kind of suspicion of government that a large part of the American population agrees with, actually. Um, it's, yeah, I was reading this article in the Wall Street Journal. Mm-hmm. They were comparing the case of Sweden versus the United States uh, in times of corona. And they were saying mm-hmm. that the United States was a low trust society. And mm-hmm. what that means is that uh, the Americans have like a low trust in government. So in fact, like imposing very strict restrictions on their social mobility in the United States would actually create a social crisis because people would rebel yeah. pretty intensely. And uh, so that would be a consideration. And I guess we're seeing some of that now, like in the recent protests that have been going Mm -hmm. on in Ohio and Texas and Michigan. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, people don't like to be told what to do. And um, a lot of them are just like demanding that their constitutional rights, right to assembly, uh, et cetera, be upheld. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I've only seen like bits on Fox News where they, I guess they kind of support it on Fox News. What were they saying on Fox News? Um, Judge Janine on Fox News um, says, uh, we're Americans born of revolution. Um, You can't hold us down. I can't remember the rest. (laughs) We're Americans born of revolution. You can't hold us down. Okay, Uh yeah, I mean, that's true. It's in our DNA. that's, That's true. That's true. The people are demanding that they want to, they want to go back to work. Um, mm-hmm. the, the government imposed measures are crushing people's jobs and livelihood. Um, and the American people don't mm-hmm. want that, this to be like, interrupted. And mm-hmm. obviously aware that Corona is a huge thing. And um, this is a spin on Fox News that they, that they're not stupid. And, and they realize that it needs to be social distancing and new measures in place, but that um, the American people should be able to lead this themselves. Um, and not be like nanny stated, like molly coddled by the state. Yeah, I mean, in Michigan, where there was the largest protest thus far, in part, they were prompted because Michigan had the harshest, um, more strict uh, regulations. Mm-hmm. And so they, um, they can't do things like go from their one home to another so if they have two homes a lot of people in michigan they have like a cabin in the upper peninsula or something they can't go Mm -hmm. there so um and they can't use their boats Mm -hmm. and they can't uh they can't buy things for gardening i mean it's kind of strange things you know and like to sort of tell people that you can't go to your own property that's sort of an unprecedented thing i guess yeah and you know and i mean look so the liberal media is covering this in terms of like these stupid trump supporters you know like we wish them well hope that they get infected and like whatever i mean it's getting pretty dark it's like oh well they'll be dead soon anyway but when you hear these people talk like even just 
on the same liberal media that's covering the protests, like they'll have like clips of some of the people talking. If we don't get to work, you don't get to work. Freedom is essential. Our community is struggling. My husband is on unemployment for the first time in our life. And it's unwillingly that we're taking unemployment. We want to go back to work. Mm -hmm. It's America. Like, if you don't work, you die. Well, people are also ter they're terrified that their businesses are going to go under. Um, terrified that they're yeah, not, they're not going to have a sustainable income coming in. And a lot of people are living paycheck to paycheck as well. Um, and so this, this shit's real. And it's shit very different real. to um, news, like news presenters on M MSNBC or something who have like this kind of... The, they have a they can have a bigger security in place. So it's a dire situation, you know. And like obviously, it gave me um, twenty sixteen vibes, you know, the deplorables. Mm -hmm. It was like all it was like again like the clips of people right in front of like in Lansing in the capital of Michigan protesting, and it's just like them with these like signs, and of course they're you know taking like the most stupid signs and just like showing them all oh, these dumb people, you know. And and I'm like, well, how did that work out last time? Uh huh. How that how that work out? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. You know. Yeah. Yeah. But I guess when you are trying to elect Joe Biden, you'll do anything. On Biden not being an electable candidate, did you see there's this American artist? Um, I think he knows people in Platypus. Anyway, he, he published this. He described his art practice as posting liberal social cringe. Um, he made this kind of like meme and it has a picture of Biden, um, like kind of looking at the sun. And in the text, it says his brain, full stop, know his heart. Brad Trammell. Right. That's it. That's it. And this went viral. And um, and the Democrats thought that um, Trump's team had, had posted it and Twitter got involved. Yeah. And and Brad Trammell kind of defended himself as well, saying the, the meme he created, it has a similar kind of sentiment to to the, the marketing they're doing for Biden anyway, where one of like the marketing ads for Biden has a picture and it, of Biden and next to it says our best days are ahead of us. Um, yeah, this kind of play on Biden's sonality. I was reading that. Um, yeah, do you know what I mean? Yeah, funny. I saw this today. I laughed. I mean, it's funny. What are you selling when you're putting this man at the forefront of a presidential campaign? Like a well-meaning grandpa or something? You know, I think he has a very sad story. Mm. Mm -hmm. And when you hear it, you really feel for the man. I mean, you know, I think he lost his son and he also lost, his, he wife. lost his wife mm -hmm. and um, quite tragic. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And he has this connection to the establishment. Right. So there's a certain stability to him in that regard. But he's clearly not fit to run. So like when they're selling, you know, good old Joe, they have to turn him into just like a cutesy, like a nice, like a nice warm person, you know, who's who's uh -huh. trying his best. He's just trying his best, and mm -hmm. um, and that's all they can do. And they have to then demonize Trump on the other hand. So it so it's like best days are ahead of us, you know, with a smile of, of yeah. Joe Biden, kill us with charm. And then on the other hand, it's like Trump wants you to inject bleach into your veins so would you rather have the fascist who wants you to die or this really nice grandpa look at the grandpa he's so nice like that's 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 what the choice has become <laughs> it's lame it's really lame the almost like fascism is on the other side of where it's like these people are deplorables like maybe they should um like uneducated people shouldn't be able to vote this kind of thing that is coming from the 
the the so-called liberal side um that is the actual scary shit but people can't see it uh yeah like like when people are saying let these people mm-hmm. die because mm-hmm. they're dumb mm-hmm. uh yeah that sounds to me like closer talk to uh fascism you know i mean obviously like if there were a socialist party we would want to turn these people we would want to appeal to them right that your suspicions about government are true they're not doing shit for you they don't care about you they don't have your best interests in mind and they're putting your lives in danger but there isn't a socialist party so instead we're being told that trump is a fascist and we need to vote for joe biden so that's it that's all Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. goodbye Mm -hmm. (laughs) goodbye um all right sophia take care Bye-bye. Talk to you soon. Born of rebellion and revolution, we are ready to fight. It's in our DNA. We're ready to fight the virus. Ready to fight to get back to work. There's a war going on outside we ain't safe from. And I hope it don't stay long. Came from a bat and a snake done. Coronavirus is a pagan. Gotta stay safe, cause I ain't dumb. Got the life, so with me, I got my spray on. Can't leave your house for your day job. And some people now are getting laid off. It's mud, never drink mud. Everywhere we go, everybody's in a mask. I won't say it's just to get bog roll. All sold out, I'm like, what? No. Cause I ain't trying to see no one. NHS is a bad thing, please don't come. Most food stores for sure and got a lot now. Can't go abroad, and schools are on lockdown. So please don't cough around me, keep your salivas. Keep it pasta and rices, gone no hand sanitizers. Try ordering that isn't Lee, but there was no drivers. I'm trying to catch some flights, not coronavirus. Oh, no. Big sis needs an apology, because I'll be on one, like I'm in quarantine. Oh, man, had to change up a whole lot of plans. Will you go by your business? Wash them hands. Hello, welcome to another quarantine edition of Shit Platypus Says. The commentary on the commentary on the left. This is Pamela Nogales. This installment of SPS comes in two parts. In the first, I interview August Nimtz, professor of political science at the University of Minnesota. August wrote a two-volume book on Lenin's electoral strategy from Marx and Engels through the revolution of 1905 and from 1907 to the October Revolution of 1917. On the occasion of the 150th anniversary of Lenin's birth, we discuss the electoral arena and his political strategy. We talk about the end of the Bernie Sanders campaign, as well as the legacy of the 1930s popular front today. August was on our convention virtual panel, The American Revolution and the Left, earlier this month. That link will be included in the episode description. On the second half, my co-host Sophia Freeman sits with the current president of Platypus, Ephraim Karlbach, who takes stock of the decline of the sectarian left, of the small Trotskyist and Maoist groups, and the waning influence of the party turn of the 1970s. They reflect on whether or not the mission of Platypus has changed in 2020, now 13 years after the organization's founding. 
As a reminder, if you like the podcast, share it, send us a review. And if you'd like to learn more about Platypus, you can find out about reading group, pub nights, coffee breaks, and screenings, which are all happening virtually by visiting platypus1917.org. That's the word platypus, followed by the numerals 1917.org. Okay, here we go. How's it going, August? I'm doing much better. <laughs> For our listeners, Professor August Nims was with us at the Platypus Convention. He was speaking on the American Revolution and the Left panel, and you wrote a very important book on Lenin's electoral strategy, and so I thought that we would talk a little bit about that today. But to start our conversation, you mentioned in our American Revolution panel, you said that you had found that Marxist dictatorship of the proletariat and Tocqueville's formulation of the tyranny of the majority. You, you'd mentioned that these were essentially the same, and I wanted to ask maybe specifically about the difference between the two formulations. With regard to the dictatorship of the proletariat, I make no claims that there are any links between uh, Tocqueville's notion and that of uh, Marx and Engels. It's simply uh, knowing Marx, Aristotle was his favorite philosopher, and uh, I suspect uh, uh, Aristotle uh, may have informed uh, Marx in some kind of way. In fact, I need to go back and look at Marx's critique of Hegel in 1843 on democracy to really flush this out. But uh, the dictatorship of the proletariat, I think, is basically, fundamentally, the tyranny of the of the majority. Uh, the proletariat, the proletariat in in the making, uh, becomes the majority class and it has to impose its will. And in the manifesto, as you know, there are on f at least four occasions in the manifesto where Marx talks about uh, the despotic rule of the proletariat, that is. And in that period of history, in the 19th century, in the middle of the 19th century, uh, despotism and tyranny were oftentimes used uh, synonymously and uh, along with dictatorship. And the person who has looked at this in detail, of course, is Hal Draper in mm -hmm. his uh, third volume uh, on the dictatorship of proletariat. And so I need to revisit to go mm -hmm. back to Draper mm -hmm. to look in detail uh, at the language, its usage, and so on in that period of history. But uh, my preliminary claim is that the content, the political content of uh, the dictatorship of the proletariat is uh, indeed the tyranny of the majority. I wanted to ask you now about the difference by way of introducing Marx and Engels' 1850 address of the Central Committee to the Communist League. This document you mentioned in your book, um, Lenin was especially fond of, and you've called it the balance sheet of the 1848 revolutions. Here, Marx and Engels call for an independent proletariat organization with a conscious and specific aim to establish socialism. So I wanted to ask you, what is the difference in this formulation, you know, between Marx and Engels and of a rule by a majority as such? What does independence here mean for Marx? Independent <clears throat> from what, from, from whom? And how did he come to these conclusions after the experience of 1848? Yeah, briefly, it's important for people to read the document. It's only 11 pages. And you'll see on the document the word independence is 
is stated at least once, maybe twice on each page. It's the balance sheet and assessment. In some ways, I think it's a a uh, self-criticism of the way the league functioned uh, in 1848, 1849. Specifically, the league dissolved itself into the general democratic movement. Mm -hmm. And what Marx and Engels and the rest of the leadership of the league are criticizing that and, and saying that in the next upsurge, and they expected that the next upsurge would be a matter of time, uh, wouldn't take long, but uh, to be prepared for the next upsurge, the lesson of 1840-1849 is that only if the working class is organized independently, uh, not only of the bourgeoisie, but also of the petty bourgeoisie, it has to have its own independent party. That was the main takeaway uh, for Marx and Engels uh, in the leadership of the League about what happened in 1848, and they were referring specifically to elections. They got, the uh, working class was betrayed in those elections that took place in 1848, 1849. And so as a way to avoid that from happening again, Marx and Engels make clear that in the next upsurge, and, and should there be elections again, the working class has to have its own candidates. It cannot do what it did in the previous uh, elections. So mm-hmm. that's what uh, I'm referring to, not only in, a, in an electoral sense, but also in a broader political sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, working class can liberate itself and it should have no faith or trust in the petty bourgeoisie and that was the lesson of uh, that's what actually happened on the ground in uh, 1848-1840 so that's why mm-hmm. it's a big deal for them that's independent working class political action is the key theme that runs through that uh, document if I can quote for our listeners one part of this document that I thought was especially powerful given the and the Sanders campaign says the proletariat will lose all its hard-won independent position and be reduced once more to the mere appendage of official bourgeois democracy. So this unity must be therefore resisted in the most decisive manner. Uh, he says that without this, that they would just be reduced to the level of an applauding chorus. Yes. So, so this document that you say um, Lenin often liked to quote uh, in the lead-up to the October Revolution and he considered it his political playbook. So I wanted to ask you specifically, how does the legacy of Marx and Engels, um, how is it activated in Lenin? What, what did he implement from these lessons into his political strategy that led to the October Revolution of 1917? Yes, first on the uh, Lenin and the document itself, uh, it's Ryazanov, David Ryazanov, who was sort of the archivist for the Bolsheviks, who did a survey once, and uh, in that survey, I asked Lenin and other people about what they read and what influences had come from uh, Marx and Engels had been influential. And uh, yes, it's Ryazanov. I'll never forget the page when I first read it. It was in Ryazanov's little book, great little book, still a classic. Ryazanov says that Lenin loved to quote from the document. He memorized it and always quoted from it. So it's, it's not just a quote. But we know that Lenin implemented it. And one of the things that runs throughout Lenin's strategy, especially when the Bolsheviks get a chance to be a part of the electoral process beginning in 1905 and 1906, the core, the core of his activities is to make sure that the working class was independent of the bourgeoisie. That was the big argument with the, uh, with the Mensheviks. The Mensheviks were always bending to the liberals. And it was Lenin the stickler. It was Lenin more than anyone 
who was insistent on independent working class political action. So I argue it's not just the Ryazanov quote we have, but also Lenin's actions, what he actually did in using the electoral arena, not as an end in itself, but as a means to an end. And there was those two sentences in the 1850 document where Marx and Engels say that the value of participating in elections is that it gives you an opportunity to count your forces, to count your forces, <laughs> in other words, in order to know when, when to prepare for armed struggle, and secondly, to educate, to educate, use elections to educate. And so my claim is, and that's what I try to document in my two volumes, that's the core that runs throughout uh, Lenin's strategy. I shouldn't... The uh, the title I really wanted to give the book <laughs> was called Revolutionary Parliamentarism uh, ah. rather than Lenin's strategy because <laughs> it sounded like it was a strategy. But we realized that nobody would have known what parliamentarism is. And so we settled on that. But it really should be called, the book should be called uh, Revolutionary Parliamentarism. Uh, that was Lenin's alternative to the the betrayal of the Social Democrats in Western Europe. Reformist parliamentarism as opposed to a revolutionary parliamentarism. But so yeah, that's what I argue. I don't think I've discovered anything new. It's just a question of it's all there. All you have to do is read Lenin and to to find that. I'm not making any original arguments about discovering something that's uh, new this strategy or this perspective, revolutionary parliamentary was so important to Lenin that they actually formulated in 1920. It's all distilled in one of the key documents of the Third International. It's one of the key theses. It's the thesis on parliamentary and democracy, I think is the name. I can't remember of it. Uh, it may, may even be called the thesis on revolutionary parliamentarism. So the Bolsheviks uh, not only employed it, but they thought it important to distill what they did and to make it available to fledgling parties that were coming into existence elsewhere in the world. So, yes, it's it's if you read that document, so I made it maybe about a 20-page document thesis, but it distills what Lenin's perspective was in the experience of the Bolsheviks uh, between 1905 and 1914, 19, 1917, and my claim is that at the core of the practice is what I call the playbook, the 1850 uh, address, and I think that informs uh, Lenin throughout that period. If, if I do something original, what I do originally, I think, for the first time is to connect the practice of Marx and Engels around the electoral arena to what Lenin did uh, between 1905 and 1917. I, I connect the proverbial dots. That's, I think, is the only contribution I claim. So you mentioned just briefly the early 20th century and the Social Democratic Party of Germany specifically and their vote for war credits. This causes a break in the history of revolutionary socialism, and it's a sort of break that's forced upon Lenin on, on the eve of World War One. And I wanted to know, how do you understand the changes in his political strategy or the changes in his own politics, his own perspective after this break with social democracy uh, after World War I? 
Well, I think there's no real fundamental change in Lenin's perspective other than to realize uh, that indeed he didn't have fellow comrades in Western Europe and it was the need therefore to form a new international. That perhaps is the most important thing, that's the lesson uh, for Lenin. It's time now to form a new international. And so that's the lesson and so if you're asking as I think about it, yeah, that that's the change. That is to, to find fellow-minded revolutionaries, people like Luxembourg, Karl Liebknecht, and others, and to uh, begin forming a new international. So in 1915, at the end of 1914, 1915, and w- when he's in Switzerland, the Zimmerwald movement, to begin looking for people, that eventually brings, brings him and Trotsky back, uh, back together again towards the formation of a new international. And as Lenin, as you know, was always uh, was a stickler when it came to organizational organizational discipline and the need for organization. And by the way, if I uh, there's one thing I would uh, recommend uh, for aspiring uh, revolutionaries today is to read that 1901 article that Lenin wrote that was sort of an introduction to his What Is to Be Done. It almost has that same title, but it's not quite. But it's in that article in which uh, Lenin says, famously, when a revolutionary upsurge happens, if the revolutionary party doesn't have a party in place, it's too late. It's too late to try to form one in the middle of a revolutionary upsurge. And so the obligation for all of us is to use these relatively quiet moments. This is a time for party building. And if you want to understand why the Bolsheviks were hegemonic, in 1917, it wasn't inevitable that the vote, there were other kinds of competing parties. I claim it's exactly because that realization, uh, insight in 1901, that if you didn't have a party in place before uh, the proverbial shit hits the fan, it's too late to try to form one. There's too much turbulence going on. Mm-hmm. And so 1905, I argue that 1905 was to was the dress rehearsal. That's not original on my part. Both Lenin and Trotsky, or 1905, <laughs> we will need our 1905 in order to be able to get our act together. Lenin, you wrote, believed that what is decisive in the fate of the electoral process itself takes place outside of its very parameters. Parliamentary cretinism for Lenin is the inversion of priorities by seeing the elections as the ends of socialist and not the means. And in this way, socialists lose sight of the goal. So elections for Lenin were a means to an end, you say. It's one, to educate, and two, to count forces. And this got me thinking about the way that socialists today, or so-called socialists today, use Lenin to argue that working people, even though they have no independent party, should build, quote-unquote, coalitions with capitalist parties like the American Democrats, for example. And you... You seem to actually emphasize that, in fact, without their own party, there is no room for this coalition building. And so what happens in the absence of the political party for the working class like today? Well, we got to form one. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's the that's the lesson, uh, the very slow and painful work. And that's what 19, the, the 1901 article uh, argued for. And Lenin was dead serious and from then on that was his 
his major activity. How do you put in place a revolutionary party? And so that's the lesson, I think. And uh, in the same way that the Communist League for Marx and Engels, that was the lesson they drew uh, from uh, their experience, their baptism of fire, as uh, Lenin once put it, 1848-1849 revolution. And so Lenin stands on their shoulders, the shoulders of their self-criticism of what happens when you don't have uh, working class doesn't have its own its own political party and so yeah it's hard work but boy i think uh, um, the re the world we live in at this moment as we're speaking and so on and given the betrayals of social democracy uh, which go way back as you know to 19 1914 uh, but it's been on full display on full display uh, very recently uh, at least since the great recession in places like uh, greece uh, with Syriza, uh, the Workers' Party uh, in uh, Brazil. So we've had lots of lots of teaching moments, uh, and I think there are a lot of young people who are looking for an alternative now, and uh, we are forced to, because of the pandemic, we are forced to have to think outside of the box. Who would have thought that we would be seeing a depression in our lifetime? So going back to this issue of the betrayal of social democracy, because one of the things that you said during our American Revolution panel was that Lenin called himself a social democrat until, right, until Day mm -hmm. voted for war credits. And, right. and, you know, there's this tension in the memory of Lenin in the 20th century that I think a lot of people, when they think of Lenin, they think of him as a sort of minoritarian, a kind of minority position. You know, the the third international was competing with the second international, right? It, some members were part of both internationals, right? They were vying for political influence. And so it raises the question, I guess, the legacy of Lenin in this way, right? Not as simply calling for building the mass socialist party, but what kind of intervention was he trying to make after the betrayal of social democracy? The intervention he made was to collect, to put out a call to all of those who had been disappointed or felt betrayed by the, by the vote. Uh, there were minorities within all of the major parties. He knew that because he had worked with many of those people like Luxembourg and so on. So yes, the call went out for those who wanted to, to regroup and that got to be uh, complex because there were those who didn't fully want to break with the second international. They became known as the two and a half uh, international. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> and so the, that it required more differentiation inside. Uh, the Zimmerwald movement was not a smooth, easy process, but it began in uh, 1915. And uh, the fruit of it, of course, was the, the Bolshevik revolution. And once the Bolsheviks have state power, then they can actually, they have the authority, they have the political and the moral authority to call for a new international. Up until then, uh, Lenin's call could only attract limited numbers of forces. But once the Bolsheviks did it, then uh, Lenin could say, look, we did it. <laughs> this is how we did it. We have the authority, therefore, uh, to call for a new, a new international and all kinds of all kinds of groups, fledgling groups, new parties were created here in the United States, for example. Uh, that's when new parties came into uh, existence. And so, yes, that's the, that's the way it was done. It was a 
process issuing a call, appealing, recognizing that within these uh, second international parties, there were splits, there were differences that were registered in the vote, and they began to put out a call for those people. Yeah, so that, if that's what you mean in terms of trying to maneuver with the second international, I would call it more, uh, more principled kind of maneuver, and that is you put out of a call, this is what we stand for, and any, anyone who wants to join us, you're welcome to be a part of that. Yeah, I was interested in how you just formulated that there was there was this recognition of differences, that those mm -hmm. differences within the Second International were not just academic differences, that they have political consequences. And right. now it was a moment to call out these differences, to bring people together on the basis of a political project that recognizes those differences. One of the differences, too, within the Second International that Lenin saw very early, when he began, I think, to have second thoughts about it, was in 1907 at the Stuttgart uh, conference, and it was on the colonial question. And this is when he noticed that the, the major social democratic parties in uh, Europe, the German party, especially the French party, the Belgian party, and so on, they became uh, chauvinists on the colonial question in supporting their own bourgeoisie's imperialist powers. That, for Lenin, was one of the first signals that there was something problematic. Uh, but he still had hope. And uh, he was still looking for the differences and so on. Uh, within, he realized that there were differences uh, within the Second International, and not everyone agreed. But yeah, he put out the call. Lenin's writings on electoral strategy were buried later generations of Marxists. You argued that one of the reasons for this temporary loss was that after 1935, under the Popular Front strategy adopted by the Stalinists, Lenin's critique of the subsuming of the proletarian revolution under a liberal leadership was too threatening to the political strategy of fighting the fascists or the People's Front by communists joining up with the progressive forces. So in other words, the Stalinist strategy of the Popular Front buried Lenin's insights about the necessity for an independent working class leadership. How does this history, this kind of intentional forgetting and this kind of removal by the Stalinists, this falsification of Lenin, how does this history speak to us today, especially given the persistence of the New Deal in the United States among socialists as the high point of the American communists on the left? Well, uh, uh, as you mentioned, uh, uh, the high point, and that was in the 1930s and 1940s, especially when the Communist Party helped to bring the labor movement into the Democratic Party. And we pay a price. We pay a high price uh, for that decision. That's the closest United States that we've come to having a working class party. And only in Minnesota was that actually achieved. Just as at the national level, uh, the Stalinists implemented or help to undermine independent working class political action at the state level in Minnesota, uh, that, was, uh, that was also the case. So it's important for us to know that history, to understand that history. One of the reasons why the Popular Front strategy had a degree of popularity, and we have to admit that, is because it was pitched as the answer to fascism. And because there was never an honest discussion at the Seventh World Congress in Moscow about why the fascists came to power. A lot of young people were miseducated <laughs> about why the fascists came to power. There could never be an honest discussion in Moscow 
about that exactly because the, the reprehensible uh, role that Stalin personally played in undermining any kind of unity uh, between the social democrats and the communists uh, in, in Germany. And so for many well-meaning people who wanted to stop fascism, think about how that's used in the U.S., uh, how you got to keep the, you got to keep the fascists out of it. This is why we got to be in the Democratic Party, to stop the fascists from that. That was the same argument that was used in that in that period. It's the same argument that Lenin had to go up against in dealing with the Black Hundred, the lesser of two evils. That's an important, important uh, lesson. So that's one of the important. So knowing that history, to, have, to answer briefly your question, it's important for us to know that history and also to recognize that the Stalinists don't have the influence today that they once had. They are a spent force. We are lucky. In my generation, when I was coming of age politically, I wanted to be a Stalinist. I just, I couldn't find them. I didn't realize that they were all in the Democratic Party. <laughs> <laughs> no, I looked for them. That was my generation. I was, I was from the Angela Davis uh, generation, so you, you're looking for a revolutionary party. <laughs> and so, Boy, the great thing is for a young person radicalizing today, boy, you're less likely to run into a Stalinist than at any time. And, yeah. There's the political influence of the Stalinists, and there's the history of the left that they've left us. And I think what I found your comments to be especially powerful was what you were talking to us is what Trotsky called the school of falsification by the Stalinists. And that we have inherited a version of Lenin, devout of his early uh, strategy and thought. And so it's interesting that at the same time, what socialists, let's say, in the Democratic Socialist of America or people behind Bernie Sanders, what these socialists consider to be the high point of American communism, this 1930s moment, this New Deal Mm -hmm. moment, is also the moment in which we are robbed, as the generations of Marxists that will come after it, from the political lessons of Lenin. Right, right. I agree. And, and uh, you, you, you're exactly correct. And that's what I'm doing. That's my project. My, I'm trying to recover that history. That's exactly what I'm trying to, to do, to recover that history and to make it available in order for us not to make the same mistake uh, again. So that's, that's my not too hidden agenda, to recover that history. Not so long ago, just a couple of weeks ago now, uh, Bernie Sanders has dropped out of the campaign and mm-hmm. he's no longer in the running for being the president of the United States. And it does leave this question of what's going to happen with the Democratic Socialist of America, what's going to happen to these people that support Sanders. And I mean, I guess I would ask you in your years of being on the left, what are your thoughts on what's going to happen to this organization and, and what, would you, what would be your, your advice I suspect there will be splits. Mm-hmm. There will be splits, and revolutionary Marxists will look have to look for the best of them, in the same way that Lenin looked for the best of the uh, social social democrats to form a new international. That's that's our task, and to do that, I think it's important uh, to provide an alternative, a real alternative to uh, to what Sanders and the social democrats represent, and that is to actually be a part of the working class to be a part of the working class fights, to sink our roots in the working class, to be a part of these fights, these fights that are coming. Given this crisis right now, I'm, I, I live here in Minnesota. I'm looking at 
around right now with these meatpacking plants and so on, and the resistance that is taking place within these plants, these big, these people, the fight for uh, safety on the job. <laughs> that's, a basic, that's a basic right for the working class. In other words, to control production. Think about how significant that is when workers want to control the pace of production on an assembly line for the purpose of health. That's, that gets to the very root. I think that will differentiate. Being a part of those fights will differentiate those who are willing to be a part of the working class as opposed to those who want to be in some way or another still in the popular front. Mm-hmm. If I may ask you, how did you, how did you come to the left? How did you become a Marxist? As I said, I tried to find the CP. <laughs> you tried to find it in the Communist oh, yeah. Party. Yeah, I grew up in Jim Crow New Orleans. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, I grew up in the Jim Crow New Orleans. I thought Stalin was a great guy, you know, because he he because the racist way I grew up hated him. You know, all uh-huh. of the anti yeah, I say if, if the racists hate him, there must be something good about Joe, <laughs> Uncle Joe. <laughs> so. <laughs> So I was yeah. very lucky if I had gotten my first teaching job, my, my wish job at the University of Chicago, I probably would have ended up in the CP because the CP was hegemonic in Chicago. But by accident, I came to Minnesota mm-hmm. <laughs> looking for the CP, couldn't find it, but I found this other organization. I had no idea who they were, and it was the Socialist Workers Party. And this was the city where the Socialist Workers Party had a significant influence going back to the 1930s. So purely by accident, to answer your question, mm-hmm. accidents of history. <laughs> Trotskyist by accident. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> well, it's, exactly. been a, it's been a great pleasure talking okay. to you, August, and thanks okay. for giving us your time, and we okay. hope to, to continue to work with you in the future. Same here. Okay, fam, take it easy. Yeah. Right. Come on. Come on. I ain't going back. I ain't going back. Splitting five and make doubles. I ain't going back. I ain't going back. To when there was no rush, just rustle. I ain't going back. I ain't going back. To when my pride so much left the puddle. I ain't going back. I ain't going back. But I say tapped into that hustle. I ain't going back. I ain't going back. Splitting five and make doubles. I ain't going back. I ain't going back. To when there was no rush, just rustle. I ain't going back. So we had our virtual convention in April. Um, and Ephraim, the president of the Plaspis Affiliated Society, addressed the issue of the collapse of the sectarian left and Marxist groups. We thought we'd catch up to discuss some changes on the left over the past couple of years and maybe how this has been affecting Plaspis as well. So hi Ephraim, how are you doing? I'm doing all right, Sophia. How are you? Good. So I have a question for you. At the Plaspis Convention, you discussed the recent historical collapses on, on the Marxist left. Could you talk us through some of these notable collapses? and changes to the left that we've seen in the past couple of years. Yeah, so one of the things we talk about in Platypus is tracking time on the left, making history palpable. And so we're thinking about changes that are going on on the left and how they're affecting what we're trying to learn about in Platypus. And so obviously, you know, the past five years have seen this turn towards a kind of neo-social democracy with the Bernie Sanders campaign and the Jeremy Corbyn leadership of the Labour Party and more broadly than that, the DSA and Momentum, as well as phenomena in Europe like Die Linke and Syriza that came a bit earlier, um, really as a kind of slightly delayed response to the financial crisis in 2008. 
And we've been thinking about that in tandem more broadly with the, the crisis of neoliberalism and the political expression that has found elsewhere. And that kind of experience on the left has meant a major crisis for the what you might call the sectarian or uh, Marxist left, the kind of the small groups that, um, you know, the alphabet soup of uh, Trotskyists and Maoist organisations that really came out of the new left, although some of them will have roots going back to parts of the old left. And obviously, you know, Trotskyism and Maoism kind of bridge that in some way. They really are phenomena of the new left. And so the the crisis of these organisations um, has been quite profound and has definitely accelerated uh, in the past year with really the collapse of momentum and Jeremy Corbyn's failure to win an election and now the second failure of the attempt to get Bernie Sanders on the Democratic Party ticket in the United States. But momentum, I guess, haven't so much collapsed is, is now they're supporting Keir Starmer, right? Well, it's weird, yeah, because... I think what really has failed are the attempts by the left to quote-unquote refound momentum. Mm -hmm. What I was really thinking about and what we were discussing at our virtual convention was the crisis of the Trotskyist and Maoist groups to recruit millennials Mm -hmm. and how they haven't, you know, they've really experienced a deeper crisis that goes back before this kind of neo-social democratic turn and the way they've kind of been abandoned or or collapsed into the Labour Party and the Democrats in the US. Mm -hmm. And it really goes back to the millennial left, all the way back to even, you know, to the anti-war movement, but possibly even to the anti-globalisation movement. And we've seen splits in and collapses and liquidations of, of various groups, perhaps most notably the SWP's sort of cliffite sister organisation in the United States, the ISO. Yeah, could you expand a little bit more on the on the crisis of the ISO, which has been a big liquidation, a big collapse on the on the left in recent times? Yeah, so it was kind of similarly significant on the US left to the way the SWP was, and somewhat farcically, it also experienced its crisis around the issue of sexual assault mm-hmm. and cover-ups and mishandlings and and all of that. But really, that might obscure the deeper political issue in the crisis, which is really how to orient towards the Democrats mm-hmm. um, and how to, you know, what their work with the DSA means. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when Platypus started in 2006, really also as a product of the millennial left and the anti-war movement and this question of, of you know, whether the millennial left would be able to overcome the legacy of the new left and to a lesser extent, the kind of Gen X, 80s to 90s left. Mm -hmm. The ISO was the kind of, you know, organisation par excellence exhibiting that kind of attempt at continuation with new left and Gen X socialism, but really kind of movementism. You know, we discussed at the time in Platypus, people talked about kind of half-jokingly, well, what it would mean for the ISO to disappear. Mm. And, you know, now it has. Mm -hmm. And one of the problems that poses for Platypus is, you know, that our self-education in the history of Marxism is is quite self-consciously mediated by our engagement with these uh, left-wing groups. So, you know, we, we go to left-wing events, we read the sectarian press, 
we host them on our panels. And, you know, it's going to, it poses a challenge for us in terms of how we think about our own kind of educational project of making the death of the left palpable and brushing history against the grain in the absence of those organisations. But there's also this this false overcoming of the problem of sectarianism, right? So I think if you look at the kind of post-mortem documents on the ISO that are written by people who were participating in that and the ones who kind of have moved more towards the DSA, they really think that they've basically overcome the problem of sectarianism and that the issue of the preservation and distortion of Marxism you know, that kind of goes hand in hand with that tradition of the Trotskyist and Maoist groups has, like, finally been overcome by this turn towards neo-social democracy. And it's really a false resolution of the problem. And you can see it not only in how the sectarian squabbling continues nonetheless in even less conscious form inside the DSA and inside the Labour Party and inside Momentum, it's not a resolution of the problem, it's not going beyond the problem that was posed by the issues that came out of that party turn in the 70s, but it's really an attempt to just forget that those issues ever existed. It's a capitulation away from, you know, education in Marxism and the question of independent working-class politics. So that puts us in a kind of weird position because we then end up on the one seeming in some ways to actually uphold the a kind of legacy of those groups, a legacy of Trotskyism. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to go back to something you brought up earlier with the crisis of Trotskyist and Maoist organisations and on the more like sectarian left, and you related this um, to the failure to recruit millennials um, and to train like a younger generation of cad cadre, I guess. Mm. And then you related this back to the anti-war movement and this political coming of age of the millennial generation. Mm -hmm. What was the, the opportunity missed um, by these sectarian left organisations in terms of why weren't the millennials interested in their leftism? There's certainly a crisis around the relationship between the new left to the gen, to kind of Gen X. So the 80s, 90s generation was already kind of moving away from actually reproducing the Marxist education that the new left groups tried to build, but also obviously turning away from really the party turn in the 1970s on, on the new left, so the, the turn to building Leninist parties and so on, which, you know, that's what the SWP comes out of. It became the SWP in, in 1977 with this kind of Leninist turn. And, you know, we, we do address that in our primary Marxist reading group syllabus, kind of indirectly, but it's definitely there in the Spartacist League pamphlet, Lenin the Vanguard Party, which is really a kind of product of that moment. It's talking about the failed attempt of the International Socialists and the IMG, the Mandelite Trotskyist group in the UK, to that they had like merger talks and, and it failed. But also the Spartacist League in Britain started around that time. And, you know, they're now winding down Workers' Hammer, their, their British publication. That, so the crisis of, you know, to kind of recruit the millennial left was already kind of expressed in, in the inability of the kind of Gen X, 80s, 90s to really reproduce that 
party turn and educational turn among the Maoist and Trotskyist groups. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I just I just wanted to specify that I wasn't um, mourning the failure of the the left to recruit um, the sectarian left to recruit millennial um, cadre um, during the anti-austerity moment. But I was just wondering why um, historically it kind of came about that the sectarian left was failing to to reproduce itself. Right. Yeah, no, I think that's an important point. I mean, you know, we're we're raising these issues, but it's not like, you know, if only the SWP had, you know, had become like even bigger or or managed to recruit the millennial left in a more successful way. Like, no, we don't mourn that. Um, I think you know, the issue um, goes back to the 80s and then further to the crisis of the new left. Um, and in a way, the millennial left has just repeated the collapse of the new left into the Democrats and Labour. And that, you know, it's the, the failure there is the failure to of the left to stop tailing uh, so-called progressive capitalism, which itself is a problem going back to the New Deal and the Stalinists uh, supporting, um, you know, the Popular Front and and the Democrats and and so on. You know, the the question of the millennial left was whether it would actually not repeat the mistakes of the 60s, right, not repeat the mistakes of the new left. And really the failure of the anti-war movement already signalled the kind of inability to go beyond that impasse. I I think this is interesting because... So I wasn't a founding member of Platypus, but there are stories from founding members that during the birth of Platypus, some members of the new left who are old by this time are kind of warning against repeating their errors going forward. And it's funny now that there's just just the other day, uh, a letter was released from the new left signed by the likes of Mark Rudd, supporting, advocating Joe Biden. Yeah, I saw that. Right, the Students for a Democratic Society. Yes. Again, that points back to the, the what was the opportunity of the 60s, right? Was there an opportunity to actually build a socialist party and not kind of reproduce sectarianism? We marked last year in, in the Platypus Review the crisis and crack-up of the SDS, the 50th anniversary of 1969, with a series of interviews by Spencer Leonard. You know, so it kind of re-raises that crisis. And then what you get with this, I mean, you know, the 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 repeat of the the SDS members addressing the millennials now and telling them, you know, vote for Biden is is really just farcical, but sums up the whole issue of of the left collapsing into the Democrats and the Labour Party, which is a repetition of the pattern that emerged already in the 60s with the 1968 Democratic Party convention. And I think significantly the 1964 election in the UK when when Harold Wilson was first elected. I raised the question earlier about the, the failure of these leftist groups to recruit millennials because I, I guess Platypus relies on on this history or try attempting to learn from the the past mm-hmm. and then what that might mean for our present moment the opportunity to reconsider the history of the left rather than the opportunity to politically lead let's say the anti-war movement or the anti-austerity movement 
I mean, that's precisely the break Platypus makes with the left, which is that we don't have a strategy like that. The question we were raising and that we are still raising is, was there an opportunity to actually reconsider the deep history of Marxism, which still haunts the left and is an obstacle to actually uh, reconsidering emancipatory politics in our time? Firm and young with a laid back tongue. The aim is to succeed and achieve at 21. Just like Ringling Brothers, our days in a sound. Captivate the mass, cause the pros is profound. Do it for the strong, we do it for the meek. Boom it in your boom it in your boom it in your Jeep. Or your Honda or your Beamer or your Legend or your Benz. The rave of the town to your foes and your friends. So push it along. Trails we blaze. Don't deserve the gong. Don't deserve the praise. The tranquility will make you unborn. So one thing is discontents and how what the opportunity of discontents like mean and what they lead to and so on but I think that's it's related but I think that's kind of separate or or we would maybe separate it from the question of how history is acting on the present and whether there's an opportunity not to kind of turn the anti-war movement into a revolution or turn anti-austerity into a socialist party but whether there's an opportunity to uh, reconsider the history of Marxism, right? So that these phenomena, which are, you know, they have their expressions in wider society, but they're really kind of expressed at an ideological level by the left and are not the way that mainstream society actually takes up these issues, raises the question of the kind of, thought taboos, ideological obstacles that are inherited from the history of the defeat of Marxism, going all the way back to the German Revolution. There's a way in which then you could say that these sectarian left groups, which are failing to reproduce themselves, a way in which they've also succeeded Mm -hmm. with the millennial generation. You know, the way we address like Marxism in Platypus is as a, is as a ghost, really, right? A, A nagging question from the past that keeps coming up and what we want is people to confront the ghost directly confront these kind of ideological obstacles and you know if then when it comes down to it they say actually you know what we're not marxists we're just you know progressive liberals or whatever then fine good Mm -hmm. the issue is the kind of abuse of marxism to the end of that position that creates kind of ideological confusion and and historical mush. What does this mean for Platypus as a project? You know, I think one of the important things is that we run internationally our reading group, which um, has two parts. And the second part, the introduction to, to revolutionary Marxism, we read a lot of pamphlets by Lenin, Luxembourg and Trotsky. Well, they're, they're the pamphlets that the left reads, right? Exactly. So They're the key texts. Right. So we kind of take the syllabus from the left. We assume this is the kind of stuff that if we went to an ISO meeting or an SWP meeting, that people would have been, like, talking about. You know, we're reading this stuff in the reading group to essentially arm us to engage with the sectarian left. And for us to be able to experience the gulf between contemporary 
claims to Marxism and, you know, the, the way that we've been reading it in the reading group. And, you know, to have that experience of like, oh, okay, you claim to be upholding Lenin today, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but like, really? Mm-hmm. Is that the situation we're in? What does that really mean? And the abuse of Marxism. It tries to make Marxism, Lenin, for example, on the Labour Party, conform to the very changed conditions of the present. Um, and in so doing, kind of liquidates the historical consciousness mm-hmm. that, in this example, Lenin was expressing, you know, in stuff like left-wing communism and infantile disorder, or in, in the famous speech from 1920 on, on the question of affiliation to the Labour Party. The question for us then is how do we reproduce that negative learning experience Mm -hmm. in Platypus when it's kind of more difficult to to have that experience of of those groups? You can still find it. And, you know, we need to sort of be detective-like and and kind of hunt it down and, and really, like, take it seriously. I think that's an important point to make, which is that there is this thing of like leftist train spotting mm. guys in the on the internet kind of knowing every single split in this and that tradition and you know knowing all the names of all the newspapers that's not what we're interested in um but we are interested in taking these symptoms seriously and so we do encourage people to read you know workers vanguard and the weekly worker and so on precisely in order to have that kind of weird mm-hmm you know, crazy experience of people claiming to uphold a continuity with with 1917, essentially, in the present. I, I guess the crazy experience I can speak for myself is is realising that the left is dead, mm-hmm. um, which is Platypus's slogan, the left is dead, long of the left. When you, when I came to the, the had the experience of realising the left was really dead, mm-hmm. was a real moment. It's something that we try to inculcate as an experience, right? And on our panels as mm. well. Mm-hmm. The danger is that it just becomes a kind of, like, obvious statement. And it isn't really measured against that kind of claim to the opposite, the claim to the contrary. I've, I've got a sticker um, from, like, the early 90s or something. It's a sticker with a picture of Lenin and it says, Leninism lives... And in some ways, in order to experience the death of the left, mm-hmm. you need to like be confronted by someone who's saying Leninism lives. And, you know, the left does have its claims to historical continuity today, but it's not the same kind of claim as that would be, a claim to continuity with 1917, but rather it's a claim to continuity with the New Deal or the welfare state 1945. Mm-hmm. So that's really a different type of claim to historical continuity and and not such a kind of stark and productive one as the claim Leninism lives. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we're still working with that in Platypus and we're still engaging with those people too. You know, I was thinking of the, the image from Walter Benjamin of the wreckage of history piling up and that this history accumulates, right? It doesn't kind of... Into the sky, the, the pile is going upwards. The pile is going upwards, but it doesn't kind of go from one thing to, the, to another mm-hmm. and then leave the other thing behind, but it accumulates. Mm-hmm. And so what we're trying to do is essentially to dig under 
those less kind of probably less interesting claims to continuity in the present to get at how this is part of the accumulated you know accumulated history of the death of the left mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. has our mission changed um has the mission of platypus changed i don't think this changes the mission of platypus at all um it certainly changes like you know the terrain um but that's you know been the name of the game since platypus started we've been actually trying to make conscious mm-hmm. um how the terrain is changing on the left mm-hmm. and archiving those changes archiving those changes yeah and, and you know the the way we've tracked the death of the millennial left in the platypus review for 13 years now is a really important archive of that that experience and you know so so in that sense there isn't a change but uh, what there will be a change in, I guess, is how we use that archive and how we think about, you know, what's going to motivate Platypus's kind of um, education in Marxism, where we're going to have our kind of engagements with the left and how we can, you know, what's the most fruitful way for us to get the left to reflect on this history. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, you know, students like us or a new generation of students can have that experience that we talked about earlier, that kind of, that crazy experience went of the death of the left, rather than just to kind of accept it as a platitude. Well, to, well the, the left would say that the struggle continues. Well, I guess the struggle continues is the platitude, yeah. Obviously, that kind of Stalinist type of thing will will continue. But really, with the failure of the neo-social democratic turn of the DSA, Bernie Sanders, Momentum, Corbyn, etc., you might find like a new generation of people coming to university next year who actually take for granted the failure of all of that. Mm-hmm. And they just assume the failure of the millennial left politically and mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. what we'll have to do is actually get people to try and think about why that's significant and not just have it be an assumption. Yeah. yeah, good point. The other point I wanted to make was the other kind of sectarian-y pamphlet that we read um, in our primary reading group that comes out of this history, which is Cliff Slaughter's What is Revolutionary Leadership? Mm-hmm. That was written in 1960, Cliff Slaughter was a member of the Socialist Labour League. At that point in 1960, it was this kind of still early phase of the new left. And the Socialist Labour League was a was a Trotskyist organisation that had just founded. There was actually a more kind of fluid, open conversation on the left then. But very quickly after 1960, the Socialist Labour League became associated with sectarianism. Mm-hmm. So I remember, again, to go back to the the interview you and I did with Ian Birchall, he was talking about how in the early 60s, the Cliffites of the International Socialists did not refer to themselves as Trotskyist because they did not want to be associated with the Socialist Labour League, which they considered to be sectarian. There's a question there about how this kind of crisis goes all the way back to the 60s that we're raising like precisely in the reading group, which is that 
you know, why do we read what is revolutionary leadership the same way we read Lenin and the Vanguard Party by the Spartacist League to kind of frame our readings of the second international radicals, Mm -hmm. Lenin, Luxembourg and Trotsky. Mm -hmm. And the kind of conscious point there is to say we can really only access the legacy of 1917 through the new left, right? We have to go through these more or less symptomatic new left attempts to recover this history in order to get to it. And that's going to be even more important to kind of remember and to to kind of work through as the organisations which were spawned by the Leninism of the new left and the Trotskyism of the new left collapse. Yeah. On that note, if you fancy learning more about the death of the left, you can join one of our reading groups. We have two in London at Goldsmiths and LSC um, and one in Manchester in the UK. And then we also have reading groups internationally around the world. Um, You can find out more on our website, www.platypus1917.org. Yeah, 1917. Thanks, Ephraim. All right, thanks, Sophia. This has been a production of the Platypus Affiliated Society. Platypus is an international membership-based group that organizes reading groups, public fora, research and journalism focused on problems and tasks inherited from the old, new, and post-political left for the possibilities of emancipatory politics today. To contact, learn more about, or get involved with Platypus, and to access the entire back catalog of Platypus Review, please visit us online at platypus1917.org. That's the word platypus, followed by the numerals 1917.org. It's all right.